planet. By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet. Captain Planet, he's a hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. He's our powers magnified. And he's fighting on the planet side. Captain Planet, he's a hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. Gonna help him. Hello, and welcome to Carnival Personnel's Sideshow. This is Sideshow episode 62, I believe, and we actually have a guest for this, and a, and a special guest, as some would say, an esteemed uh, professor, a, a, a published author, and not like a self-published with a photocopier from 1973 not that there's anything wrong with that not, not that, that there's anything wrong with that uh there's there there is uh, i'm jacques there's biff konnichiwa, um, <laughs> konnichiwa. Uh, let's get right into it today we're going to be talking about the united states rejoining the paris climate is it the accord biff how do you what is the right term it's the paris climate agreement right climate but i mean there we go. agreement or accord agreement yeah, or accord. both of the, i think i've heard it both ways and but that voice that you heard that wasn't me or biff is uh maryland tenure professor of atmospheric chemistry special oh, guest star dr ross salowich tonight's episode the lights oh. are on but nobody's home hello ross Hi, Jock. Hi, Biff. Did, did I get the right doing? title right? It is. It is atmospheric chemistry. Atmospheric chemistry, atmospheric sciences. So uh, we'll go over Ross's uh, resume really quick. He uh, is a Harvard PhD. Uh, did his undergrad at Cornell. Which, if you went to Cornell and then you went to Harvard, did you stay away from like Yale just because that's kind of like the community college of Ivy League schools? You got it. So you went from uh, Harvard, and after became a doctor, you stayed there for maybe ten years before, about six or seven more, and then out to JPL. Yep, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratories, which is it owned or funded? There's a connection. It's no, 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 no. Yeah, so it's administered by Caltech, right? But it's a, it is a NASA facility, um, and that's where you know, and where. Uh, the confluence of Ross and, and Biff, because Ross was at Caltech uh, and Haven. At JPL, and, and Haven, he's a sideshow some other day. But the big reason we wanted to have Ross on specifically today is because Ross in 2017 wrote a book called Paris Climate Agreement, Beacon of Hope. And I remember at the time talking to Ross about what the actual Paris Agreement was how binding it is, how unbinding it is, how ambitious it is. And I remember Ross saying it is very ambitious, but it can be done. And essentially the book that he wrote is here's the roadmap to meet those goals. How correct am I in that assessment versus how much am I talking out my butt, Russ? Did, did you read the book? Did you say read uh, and book? Uh, exactly. I mean, have you, have you learned to read? That's a great summary of the book. Well, well, that's it. 
Look, amen, brother. I've actually was in the room when Ross gave his thesis defense in 84, 87. Was it that late? Okay, 87. I've seen you speak at Caltech. I've seen you speak at another college in Los Angeles. I've actually logged into when you gave a talk. I believe you were one time you were in New Zealand. I logged in and one time I want to say you were in Norway. Sounds great. So I don't read per se but <laughs> but, you, uh, but but i have like stayed awake for most of the talks and you filmed one of those talks too which is awesome i'm looking to get the tape one day but I've, hopefully I've, it still exists we will say and i will be posting part of this on on our twitter page i believe ross as a scientist as highly esteemed member of the academic community and as a person, peaked probably somewhere around 1994 when our good friend, creator of the podcast, Joe, played Ross in a series of skits called Physics Today, which was on our sketch comedy show where it was a no-nonsense look at physics. And we had Dr. Ross Salowich, again, brilliantly played by Joe, debate a rerun of the TV show Alice. That was awesome. Joe did a great job. And the funny thing is, Ross had some friends at Harvard who actually saw it. It still airs on community TV reruns, doesn't it? it, it it's sad, but it is true. So in 2017, we or 2016 is when we joined the court. When did we actually, when was the Paris? No, it was 15 was when it was negotiated and we probably joined like in 16 i don't have the exact date but but it was predated the the really important date in all of this was november of 2014 when president obama and president xi of china made an agreement about what the u.s would do and what china would do to both limit the greenhouse gas emissions prior to that meeting the two sides just couldn't get on the same page so after Obama and Xi had this agreement, the rest was sort of a done deal. Who didn't join the accord? Wasn't it all but two countries signed up for this? Yeah, well, actually, right now, that's a good question. I believe Nicaragua does not join. Let me find out exactly. Yeah, it was the, uh, I was thinking Ecuador, but it's something, you know, one Equ of those countries. Yeah. Now, Ecuador. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ross. I believe Ecuador, if it was Ecuador, the country that in South America that didn't join, didn't join because they didn't want to be part of it. They didn't join because they didn't think it went far enough. It wasn't binding. Right. And, yep. and so it's a lot of people think, oh, they didn't want to be a team player or, you know, they, they don't believe in climate change or whatever. It was the exact opposite. They withheld because they wanted it to be a binding agreement. Exactly. Um, they just didn't. Well, they didn't think it went far enough as well, because the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement is to limit global warming to two degrees. And that's two degrees Celsius. The, what we use as scientists. So it's higher if you go to Fahrenheit. Limit two degrees relative to pre-industrial. That's kind of the upper limit. And the target is one and a half degrees. And they just thought it should be a more strict limit as well. And so the, the, it gets signed. Everybody feels warm and fuzzy about it. You write the fantastic book again saying this is actually how we get there. Things kind of went sideways for the U.S. in 2016. And we won't at all get into why they went sideways, but they did. We pulled out of the agreement. How much as a as a scientist who's every day, you know, co-writing papers with other scientists around the world? Again, we we could spend just a series of podcasts talking about Ross's career in which he's 
headed up expeditions. No, nah, no, nah, please don't. You know, going over both the uh, northern and, and southern uh, ice caps and all that stuff. But as a scientist, not as like a regular, you know, person like me or Biff, how bad do we look in the world's eyes? How much do your co-scientist look at you and say, dude, what the fuck? Oh, well, our colleagues who I communicate with know what my political leanings are. And so I think that they were equally aghast as I was. So there wasn't any tension there. The real problem with the U.S. pulling out of the agreement was that a lot of the countries made pledges to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that were conditioned on financial transfers or technology transfers. And, and by the, the financial assistance, really, we're talking about low credit loans. So basically, interest-free loans. The huge problem with renewable energy is it requires a large upfront cost. And so if India can't borrow money at the same rate as a Manhattan banker, India has no chance to invest now in the turbines and the concentrated solar and all that. So really, that's how the world suffered most was the U.S. not participating in helping India and Africa out. The U.S. emissions have gone down over the last four years, despite you-know-who and what you-know-who wanted to do. And so we're going to come close to keeping the pledge that we had made. We're going to fall somewhat short if we project ahead. But right now in the U.S., our plan is to have, we have two climate czars, and they're both fantastic people. John Kerry is the climate czar for international relations. And of course, everyone should know who John Kerry is and uh, former senator and secretary of state. The person responsible for domestic is named Gina McCarthy. She's the former director of the EPA. She and John both totally command whatever room they're in. If they're both in the same room at the same time, I don't know who will command it, but they both command the room. And so these are fantastic choices. And John Kerry's already on record saying we're going to make up for lost time in helping out. Basically, he didn't use the words Africa and India, to my knowledge, but to help out the developing world. So, so we hope to make amends there. But to some degree, I guess I do have a question in terms of, so I think there's, there's kind of two questions. Number one is, is that there's the agreement goal, right? But then there is, there's a lot of discussion in regards to I think two degrees versus 1.5 degrees from you know, uh, the pre-industrial era. So even though we might meet the so-called two-degree target, to what degree do you think that we lost on an opportunity to make even more headway? Like, I know we might be on target, but is there, is there, do you think that we did have four years of lost time in terms of you know maybe going ahead of the schedule or whatever the case may be? Look, it would have been preferable if we had never pulled out but I'm going to try my best to answer your question in a circumspect way. Sure. The reason we were able to pull out is 100% due to the intransigence of one single political body, and that's the U.S. Senate. Because people have criticized the Paris Climate Agreement for not having teeth, not being a treaty, not having any punitive measures. But the reason it was written that way was Obama knew that if it was written as a treaty, the Senate wouldn't approve it. So shame on our Senate. And our Senate has been shameful on climate for as long as I can remember. So, so now, so that gives the president a chance to be in or out. Since we have been out, what has happened is that there's not been much assistance in terms of the developed, uh, developing world. 
the country that really has kind of gone a little bit too far down the coal path is India. So at the time of the election of the orange diaper baby, India didn't have electricity in more homes than there are homes in America, which is stunning. Today, India has electricity in nearly all those homes, and it's happened with more coal than we would like to see. And so that has been a real problem. And Kerry was totally on top of this. Right. So, John, if you if you watch uh, Al Gore's second movie, where you know was filmed in Paris at the time of the Paris Climate Agreement, you know Kerry has a very central role there. So we lost traction in India, and whether we'll get it back or not is incredibly hard, because who are we to tell India what to do after we burned so many so much coal for so much years? But no, I- what we need to go much further than we've gone. If I can just kind of go on a little rant here. So what's happened so far? So far, Biden has said, we're not going to build the pipeline. Okay, whoop-de-doo. Because he didn't say we're not going to take tar sands oil from Canada. He just said we're not going to get it to the refineries in Louisiana through the pipeline. So it's going to go on railways and trucks. And he probably, I don't know, but he may have assuaged Trudeau about that. So we're still going to use it. We're just not going to pipe it. So that sucks. And then he said, well, we're not going to drill on federal land for oil and gas. Well, guess what? There was too long of a time between the November 3rd election and Biden's inauguration for that policy to have any meaningful impact because there was so much permitting when everyone else was worried about, you know, stop the steal and all that BS. There was so much permitting going on for the drillers that they don't, they've run out of permit applications. I mean, I'm sure that'll eventually change, but so those are two policy measures with little teeth. The most important thing that's happened in, uh, since the inauguration was the announcement from GM, General Motors, that they're going to stop selling internal combustion engine cars. Now, let me get this right. I think it's in 2035. Yes. And while you're on the subject of cars, what did you think about Biden saying he was going to convert the fleet of to to electric? That's great as a very first step. That's great. But how many federal vehicles have you ever seen? Like, I don't even know. Are are those the post office? Everything. Think about this. I mean, how many we're talking the federal fleet. It is every secret service thing it is every oh the beast he didn't commit to the beast you know yeah you know what i mean i i'm until we deal with this in something like the trucking industry where the big volume you know emissions are 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 in the transport industry yeah transportation is about a third of the nationwide greenhouse gas emissions look electrifying the nationwide fleet is a very tangible important step but the gm step is more important and Biff, are you still in California? Oh, yes, I am. Yeah, I mean, California leads the way. California just leads the way in yeah, yeah. air pollution, fuel efficiency standards, and whatnot. So we need to electrify just not only cars, but trucks. And we need to upgrade our grid. Our electric grid is, it's wonderful that it works. It's amazing that it works. But if you know what the word Byzantine is, it's a Byzantine enterprise. Everyone trying to get a little dollar here and a little dollar there. There's so much entities and lawyers and legalese involved. 
if I were in charge, I would seize the grid by eminent domain or build a new grid because what we need is offshore wind on steroids. And we need a technology called concentrated solar, which is where you heat a fluid and you know it makes steam and it drives a turbine. We need that in the desert where people don't live. And we need to get the electricity from our concentrated solar in the desert to you know San Francisco and, and to New York and to Miami. So we need an efficient grid, both legally efficient and from an engineering perspective, efficient. Let, let, let me jump in for a sec, Ross. First of all, when you said it's a good first step, the way you said it, it's like, yeah, it's a good first step, but it's not where we need to be, which I understand. But you don't get to the second step until you take the first step. So I'm glad that the new administration's been here for 10 days, and right away they bring John Kerry in. They bring this. They sign all the legislation they sign. You know, is it everything we want in one day? No, but they're all good first steps. One of the things, but I want to take a step back, that's also what you're talking about with the, the wind and solar. By pulling out of this, how much did we did the United States lose out on manufacturing jobs because we haven't been pushing forward with we don't build wind turbines here we don't build the solar panels here and from what i understand is china was able to kind of swoop in and say oh we're very happy to take the contracts that you're not interested in we're very happy to be the leader of turbine manufacturing i think turbine manufacturing the leaders of that are in the scandinavian countries maybe mm -hmm. but by pulling out how much did we set back the possibility of these clean jobs in that last three years? I guess we, we certainly just stood still and let countries like China and certain European nations or Scandinavian nations eat our lunch. However, we just need to step up and get back in the game. And, you know, a key aspect of this politically in the Senate, if the Senate is ever going to do anything meaningful, is bringing in a coal country that Senator Manchin from West Virginia is absolutely critical, especially with the 50-50 split. And, you know, his state has a lot of coal jobs. So he is going to want real investment in his state, as he should, representing his state, for some retooling of their industry. And we're totally out of steel for the most part as well. So we need to get back into certain aspects of this in order to be a leader in the green economy. I think that that's one of the great failures of the last four years is we've done almost nothing on a nationwide basis for the green economy. I'm not diminishing coal jobs and the struggles that the coal miners and the, and the coal towns have. One of the things that I wrestle with is how many jobs are we actually talking? And, and not look, it's like when you, when you hear a stat, it's like, you know, well, only one person, you know, dies of this, you know, a year, how bad can it be? Well, if it's your family member, it's pretty bad. So I'm not saying I'm not cognizant of the hardships that those families and communities have phasing out of coal, but I don't think we're talking a gigantic industry as far as the number of employees who are, you know, reliant on this versus for every one coal job we lose over the next 10 years, the void is filled with 20 clean energy jobs between manufacturing, between installation, between maintenance of these wind farms, solar farms, and all this stuff. And, you know, it's not that these jobs are high-skilled 
or that couldn't be with, with, with you know, some some time over at Dry University or, or, or you know, is it ITT Technical Institute that we could be turning out, you know, wind turbine maintenance crews and stuff like that. And those are jobs where you don't have to send a canary in first to make sure it's safe. Exactly. So, you know, first off, we shouldn't underestimate how unbelievably people intensive the fossil fuel industry is from, you know, the extraction to the transportation to all the people who work in power plants. So if we're going to save the world from climate catastrophe, most of those jobs go away, but they're replaced by a plethora of other jobs. You know, for aviation, we're talking biofuels, or I, I just want to hit something else that is rarely talked about. If we're actually going to save the world from climate catastrophe in a meaningful way, we're almost certainly going to be talking about a technology called carbon capture and sequestration where we still rely on the combustion of fossil fuels, probably methane, at least in the U.S., because we frack it. And for us, fracking is the F word. Frack you, Jock. Um, but we're still going to do that because of all the jobs that are involved with it. So what we need to do, and they do this on submarines, and they do this on spacecraft. We use minerals like lime to capture the carbon then we can evaporate it and concentrate the carbon, and then we drill and we bury it. It's been estimated that it costs about $80 a ton to actually do on a large scale, per ton of CO2 release the atmosphere. So that could maybe double the cost of the fuel itself for an average power plant. It doesn't double the cost of electricity, which has a lot of other costs. It just doubles the cost of fuel. If we had a price on carbon that would force the utilities to do that, it would first off help save climate. And there'd be an enormous amount of jobs, chemical engineering jobs from places like Caltech um, to, to basically develop this and manage this and implement it and fix it and whatnot. But this is just scaling up what goes on submarines on a nationwide basis jobs like that. The other real issue we face that needs innovation where America is allegedly great at or is great at is basically overcoming what we call the intermittency of renewable energy. At night, the sun goes down and we don't get anything out of our solar when some wind turbines blow like gangbusters on some days and are quiet on other days. So how to basically store the energy and provide it on demand. So, so it's much harder to conceive of a huge role for renewable energy with 24 7 365 access to electricity if you're willing to tolerate electricity on some days and off other days we could do this much easier but americans aren't going to tolerate that whereas you know i play basketball um with friends who are african who like spend time in africa and you know in most modern african cities the electricity is on some days off some days in india at a Young man in my class this past semester who took it from India, and you know his town doesn't have twenty four seven electricity. Americans aren't going to tolerate that. Well, I, uh, I don't think any any Western country would. I well, don't think Canada well, let, would. I don't think England would. I don't think Japan would. Well, let me ask you about this though. I mean, in terms of that, is there a component that is related to you know? I mean, is there uh, additional research that we have to do in battery technology, right? Absolutely. Where we could we could store the battery. And, and I, I guess the other part that I wanted to ask you about is one of the discussions that I've heard in the past is really 
with solar, which is essentially the energy that is just kind of, you know, available pretty much everywhere, you know, one of the challenges is developing solar technology that doesn't use like rare earth materials, right? I mean, there's so, so many of the solar technology uses relatively expensive materials because they're, you know, rare. Um, is that is that really where we start have to start looking at some of our that's know, a fantastic yes I hope everyone caught that yes so solar PVs photovoltaic the stuff you see on people's roof tops has rare earth metals in it and uh, we we probably don't have enough access I mean they're called rare earth for a reason right they're not plentiful earth metals they're rare earth metals right, right. that yep. word has meaning um, yep. so there might not be enough lithium that we can get to quick enough. To get out of this plus solar pvs are very inefficient in terms of the electricity yield per square foot so you really have to go gangbusters to meet a whole household's needs in terms of you know you need a pretty large roof that has to be facing the right way there's a whole different technology we call concentrated solar which is not rare earth metal dependent in any way, shape, or form. It's basically using mirrors or other kind of optics to concentrate the sun. You have an enclosed fluid in glass. That we use a plentiful element, right. quartz, to make. Okay, And it heats the, actually in its oil or something like oil inside there, but it's not released. It gets hot, gets really hot, scalding hot, and it generates electricity. And there's one in the U.S., just Google it, Nevada Solar One. Another one, Kramer Junction. These work. Spain was a world leader in this technology. There's a huge one in Spain, Apaza. And we just stopped investing in the te that technology. I, I think the key is offshore wind, concentrated solar, battery technology for the intermittency. And another thing about you know the grid, you know, people are talking about basically making electricity cheaper to the consumer based on availability. So if you want to charge your car, it's cheaper to do it during the day when we have solar and sunlight, plant. we don't have to store it. And you want to charge your car at night, you'll pay more. When you actually affect people's pocketbook or wallet, they change their behavior. It's, it's, it's interesting because, first of all, I, I did want to touch on, do you feel a little guilty, Ross, making as much money as an, a major league baseball pitcher uh, raking in the big climate money because that's what the other side has been saying for years. And oh, uh, global warming's not real. It's just this. It's just this big money grab by big climate change. And so I'm just I'm just guessing your your yearly contract has to be you know that of a major league baseball pitcher. Well, I do have a major. I have an NBA contract, but well, I have a professional basketball contract. Well, it's for the Washington generals. <laughs> so, but no, I mean, that's one of the things when you were talking about, like, the money and hitting people's purse. The biggest obstacle that our country has faced is the, the global warming deniers all these years. Taking one quick yep. step back and bringing up Hafen again. Hafen spent four years in Ankara in Africa, and we, on a regular basis, would have our FaceTime calls go out, and he would call me two days later saying, yeah, we haven't had power. Sorry, I can't talk because I don't know how long we're going to have power, and I have to get as much work done as I can. But when you talk about making it a priority, I have one friend or, or management and I met a couple at the park that we became friends with in LA a few years back that dad ended up transitioning out of his out of his 
career because he wanted to get in solar, went back to school, took a job with a company in Seattle that ended up sending him to Germany for a couple of years. And just because we're in touch with them on a regular basis, my mind is blown away with how much solar Germany is able to power their country with. And what's most amazing about it is it was one day last year. It's an outlier. They're not there yet. It's not a sustainable model. But they had one day last year where the entire country ran 100% on solar one day. And what's remarkable is they get and I'm going to mess this number up, but it's somewhere about 65% less sunlight in Germany than they do in Southern California, but yet they're able to power their country with it. Well, that's a, a lot to address, but the Germans have been very proactive in renewable energy. One of the things that they've done much better in the U.S. is enabled landowners to get paid for electricity that they put in the grid without all kind of bureaucratic hurdles. So if you actually happen to travel through Germany, you'll go through farmland after farmland where you'll see cows grazing under windmills. And so for the farmers, basically, this has been a lifesaver. It's allowed them to stay in business because everywhere in the world, farming is very marginal. But if you can have a couple of turbines on your grass, it's just a perfect synergy. In the U.S., this is all done at the state level. Every state has to have what's called a renewable portfolio standard. Some states have meaningful RPSs. Most states don't. And inside each state, there's something called the Public Services Commission. They decide who gets paid for electricity they put in the grid and how much they get paid. We raised $135,000 to put 99 solar panels on a neighborhood church, Church of the Brethren University Park, Maryland. Google it. It's awesome. We had a power purchase agreement with the church between an LLC. It still exists. So we still have it. We oversized the grid. So we knew we would put out more electricity from the grid during the course of the year than the church uses. And at the time we were raising the money, we knew that the dang on utilities here in Maryland wouldn't pay us for the excess electricity. They would just use it without paying us. And we said, you know what, we're going to oversize this and we're going to Annapolis and we're going to embarrass those legislatures and get them to change the law. And we did. And the law changed. And so now today we do get paid for our excess electricity. We get paid about half. We get paid the diff the average of the retail price and the wholesale price. So we don't get the retail price. We don't, but we get a little more than wholesale. But state by state has to decide this. We need federal policy to come in and basically make it straightforward for people who put electricity into the grid to actually get paid for it. Again, pocketbook wallet. Because when you say state by state, it's interesting. I was driving through upstate New York a few years ago, and I might have been there four years ago, five years ago. And in that time, the law has changed. And if you have five acres of land, you can lease it, rent it, sell it to wind turbines. So you will be going through these random neighborhoods in Ithaca, Utica, and just see a giant wind turbine. That's awesome. Now, wind turbines have a huge issue that we face, which is called NIMBY, not in my backyard. That is a huge impediment. And so the poster child for that is uh, a great man in some ways, 
the late, perhaps great Senator Ted, Ted Kennedy. Kennedy. Right. He so he selfishly voted down a wind farm off the beach of Martha's Vineyard, which right. truly you couldn't see unless you were really squinting at a certain angle at a certain time of day. But, you know, this is one of those unfortunate both sides to it historically, not over the last 15 years, you know, 15 plus years. That was quite an embarrassment because he was somebody who seemed very positive about it until it was in his backyard. So it was in his backyard. But the great success we've had, if people want to go Google this and look it up, there's a monstrosity called Beatrice off the coast of Scotland, Wales, Scottish. Beatrice is the largest offshore wind in the world right now. It employed a huge amount of people. Construction. These are, you know, people get their hands dirty like your brother, Jock. These are construction jobs. No, and, and, and good union jobs, too. Exactly. I mean, these are ship workers, iron workers, cement layers, and all this building these monstrosities. Now, it's very controversial for the people who live in Wales and Scotland, whether they like it or not. And it's love-hate. Some love it and think it's beautiful. And others are like, eh, they, what, what have they done? But the, we, we have to grapple with this. You know, let, let, let me say, here's the other side of it. The other side of this is that the leading cause of early death in the world, bar none, is the combustion of fossil fuels. The air pollution associated with the combustion of fossil fuels. It's known that we have more instances of childhood asthma in low economic regions near factories and power plants and whatnot. And, you know, childhood asthma and children dying young, when we have air quality alerts, those alerts exist because once we have, we call it particulate matter, little particles, little aerosols, once they're above a certain level, we see more people admitted to hospitals who, who die. And so the epi folks do this. So, so we have co-benefit from stopping burning all this crap for public health. That's an enormous part of it. So if a little eyesore out your window, well, maybe, you know, your better half loves it and you hate it. Just deal with it because we're talking about the health of your children now, and the planet. But, but you're kind of glossing over, again, the elephant in the room. What about the cancer that the noise from the wind turbines cause? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, we, I so, heard that from a world yeah. leader who was very clear that. Okay, okay, okay. Not, let's not, let's not, you know, let's so, not. Yeah. So I have. That horse is so dead. Let I, me ask, yeah. I like to ask one quick question, which is, you know, one of the, so one of the, there's kind of multifold issues in this country. One of which is being that fossil fuel energy is relatively cheap in this country, right? So what Americans feel in terms of energy is very different from you know, my homeland of Japan, where it's an isolated island where they have to ship in every pretty much single drop of fossil fuel, completely different animal. I guess to what degree, though, do you think uh, we'll start actually seeing some of the effects? I mean, I have seen it firsthand in uh, my previous home state of Hawaii, where literally the beaches aren't where they used to be when I was growing up. Right. Oh, uh, is, to what degree is it going to start uh, affecting, you know, Florida and their Everglades and everything else? Uh, great, great question. Easy answer. Um, Port, if, if you want to Google this, I mean, a place that's being devastated by sea level rise right now is Puerto Rico, a place in the U.S. Uh, the West Coast of Puerto Rico is nothing what it looked like. Look, I had a um, student in my class this semester who, believe it or not, 
is he's a great man. I'm gonna I'm give him a shout out, Bill. Bill Spargo. Uh, Bill was in my class. Bill's older than me. Bill just welcomed a grandson into the world, and he was emailing me about what's gonna happen when his grandson is his age. Well, Bill's grandson will be Bill's age at about the end of this century. Okay, so let me talk to Bill's grandson. So Bill's grandson will see, if we don't get our act together, Bill's grandson will see, uh, unless, unless somehow the um, Italians can save it, he'll see, he'll see the loss of Venice. Venice is gone. They're, they're trying to save it, but it's going to be pretty tough. So they'll see the loss of Venice. Bill's grandson's name is Oliver, by the way. Uh, and Oliver will be Bill's age in 2102. So tangible. Oliver is here. Hi, Oliver. You're very cute. I saw your picture. Okay. Not only that, Oliver won't be able to go to spring break in, break in Miami. Well, or Oliver's kids won't. Miami's gone. Well, it, it's London's funny. gone. It's funny. Hold well, on. hold on. No, New York City is gone. In Florida, the former governor had forbade the word climate change to appear in any documents from his office. He was absolutely an over-the-top wing nut. We've talked in previous podcasts on the regular carnivore personnel. My three great friends who I'm looking at right now have all gone to NFL games with me. I've worked for the Miami Dolphins a few times. And I've been at Miami the last time I was there a few years ago where there was serious investment into retaining walls being built because the people of Miami understand their beachfront property is going to be gone. Like, like the beaches are going to be gone and their, their mindset from a lot of the locals I talked to, the same people at the hotels, because I went like three years in a row and became friends with people, they're afraid that within a 10, 15 year period of time, basically the beach will be gone and you will basically walk right off to a pier into the water, you know, versus, you know, the launch chairs on, on, a, on a deck versus on the sand because the sand won't be there. This is rapidly happening a lot faster. At the same time, truly, we're still fighting the this is not happening. Now, the whole hoax aspect of it has gone away somewhat. And when you go to these functions, Ross, over the last 35 years of your career, when you see these climate science deniers, you know, people who are professors, people who have the same pedigree and education you do, who are out there saying, oh, no, 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 this is all a natural cycle. This is this. Do you put them in the same category as the doctors in the 50s and the 60s and literally through the mid 70s who were saying, no, smoking's not bad for you? Would you put them in the same category? I, I love a question with an easy answer. Hell yes. Hell yes. And for those, again, I don't know if your users are gonna, or your listeners are going to listen to this, Steve, but if they are and they want to Google this, Google Heartland Institute. Heartland Institute is a very right-wing think tank that's funding these people. And damn it, sadly, some people just do anything for money. They're kind of, can I use this word? Horror? Yeah, you can use any word you want. They're kind of like whores. Not that you know, but but maybe these, these you know. Are, these are these aren't like me coming on a stupid podcast with Biff and saying this. These are people who you look them up. It's like, oh, this guy, you know, is Ivy League educated. Maybe not 
Cornell and, and Harvard, maybe it was Yale, but these are people who have doctorate degrees who are going out there on the Fox News this the last 25, 30 years saying this is all bullshit, that it's a money grab, that you know what, it's really just the cow shit. It's not the cars, it's not the airplanes, it's cow shit that is causing this. Well, it's even worse. They'll talk about natural cycles and climate, and we know by studying Earth that over millions of years, Earth's climate has changed dramatically, not due to humans, but due to natural changes in atmospheric CO2. So what's that tell us? That tells us temperature response to CO2. We also know over the last 8,000 years, for the first 7,000 of those 8,000 years, CO2 was pretty constant at about 260 to 280. And about a thousand years ago, started to rise from 260 to 280. And over the last hundred years, has shot up today to over 410 or 415 parts per million, exerting a huge more heat being trapped in the lower atmosphere, a huge amount of warming. Look, trying to get sea level rise precisely is very difficult, but you don't have to be Einstein to know that when it gets warmer out, ice melts. That's pretty obvious. So rank the scumbags in order of, you know, awful to most awful. The smoking doctors through the 50s, 60s, and 70s who knew that smoking was killing people but were out there saying that it's fine. The climate deniers for the last 35 years saying, you know, people like you are just in it for the big money grab and the, and the grants and this is all bullshit. Or is it the fifth out of... Five dentists who do not recommend Trident for their patients who chew gum. Because four out of five recommend it. But that one asshole holds out. So which which is the worst of those three? Uh, I'll put the uh, cancer deniers on the same page as the climate deniers. And I don't know. I never really was a fan. I, I was never a fan of Trident gum. I, I always liked dentine. Well, first of all, you shouldn't choose gum, period. I mean, gum, gum is stupid. You should just either eat. Or just not put stuff in your mouth. What's the point of chewing something that you don't actually eat? So on a positive note, you know, like I said, the the new administration can't undo everything in the pa- and, and and just two weeks. We also can't make up for the fact that in 1976, either the first things or one of the first things that Jimmy Carter did is put solar panels on the roof of the White House, and I believe it was his first official act as president. Ronald Reagan took him down. I mean, I, I, I literally lose sleep thinking about where we could be. I, I believe we would have uh, um, hover cars and real goddamn hoverboards like Back to the Future promised us. If- okay, so wait. Now, in, in, in Reagan's defense, how much is Ronald Reagan affected by climate change? He, he's not at all. I thought so. So uh, there you go. Ross, you know, Ross, you should see Biff. He, he does a killer impression of reagan but seriously when when i think about that when i think in 1976 we had a president who flat out you know predicted everything that happened climate wise you know people forget that you know jimmy carter was uh, he 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 has a degree in nuclear he's a nuclear physicist people do not know that but he in 1976 was saying look we have this crippling dependency on oil, and if we don't get off it, we're going to get wha- you know dragged into these quagmires on the other side of the world that have been going on for centuries, and we're going to be in the middle of it, which we are. But trying to be positive, again, the, the new administration can't do everything overnight, but are you pretty optimistic 
about what can happen over the next four years? I'm incredibly optimistic. And if I, my early comments seemed otherwise, I apologize for that. Yes, again, John Kerry internationally will heal wounds. He is incredibly respected. He is the best person. Gina McCarthy will move mountains. As I said earlier, when both either of them walk in a room, they command the room. And so the important part of this that I really want folks to understand is, you know, there's people in power who just can be manipulated and maneuvered. But the but we we need and we have people in power who can't be bullshitted. So Kerry understands the details at a deep level. McCarthy was a fantastic steward of the environment for EPA. She has the utmost, both people, Kerry and McCarthy, have the utmost respect by the scientific community. So I am incredibly optimistic that they will do right by the science. The part of it that's a little bit nerve-wracking is that for it to stick, because we need to think long, we need some congressional support. We just do, because the easiest way I can say this, and this is a bizarre analogy, why electric cars are more expensive without subsidy than fossil fuel-based cars. But part of the reason for that is you put so many dollars worth of gasoline in your fossil fuel cars, you drive it, you have stuff come in and stuff come out. Those engines are very inefficient and they have so many moving parts and they need so much maintenance. You know, Tesla doesn't have dealerships because you don't have to take your car in for service. The electrical engines are so efficient. They're so maintenance-free and they're so less expensive to run. They pay for themselves over time. And so for renewable energy, we need large upfront expenditure. And then, you know, with concentrated solar, explained a couple of times, or with offshore wind, you almost, not quite, but you almost get electricity for free. You have to deal with the transmission. You have to deal with the intermittency. That's not free. It's engineering. It's ingenuity. It's American spirit. But you need to write a large check at the beginning, or, you know, you borrow, borrow money and pay it back over time. The government is the only entity that can do that. You know, I I've driven across country a few times over the last couple of years and a number of times over the last 20 years. One thing that kind of stands out to me, I will be driving through a ruby red state and off the side of the highway, I will see a majestic, and I think they're pretty majestic, solar farms or wind farms. They know that they have to do this, that they, that this is an inevitable step that we have to trans it, uh, that we have to transition at one point or another. And while they're out there raising money off the back of the fossil fuel industry, they're also starting to kind of hedge their bets. And like I said, I, I've been through the rubiest red states driving back and forth a few times over the last like you know five or six years, and I've been blown away. It's like, wait a minute, and Nebraska? You, you, I mean, I don't. Think I, you know what? So I think I think I'd like to distinguish between when you say they, I think it's kind of. I don't think we can lump people in in chunks like that. I think I think there's a difference between the what the citizens uh, think versus what some of the people who are in charge think. Right? I mean, there are a lot of people who, as you say, on the one hand, the fossil fuel industry is trying to keep 
you know, a lot of these regulations from coming into play. Yet at the same time, in their financial planning, they are accounting for, you know, climate change, right? So, you know, they're doing things on both sides. So we know that. But I think that uh, there is a difference between what specific people in power think and understand and everything else versus what the citizens believe. And I think that's where some of the uh, the so I mean, do you th- I mean, do you actually think that the residents of Nebraska think that climate change is for real? I think that's a I think that's a different que- different question. I, I don't because they're voting the same people in. But no, it's an interesting thing. But yes, either way, you know, they, they are building one of the theories. And I've I've had this discussion with Ross. I've had this discussion with you, Biff, on our long car rides to Phoenix. We're nowhere where we are nowhere close to where we need to be. That said, when Sputnik went up into outer space in 1959, the sound of assholes just seizing up worldwide by every Western government was, holy fuck, how far ahead are they than when we are? When Kennedy said, we're going to be in the moon in a decade, that was the most insane preposterous, never going to happen statement. I mean, we weren't 10 years away from going to the moon. We were 40 years away from going to the moon at best. However, like you said, Ross, large checks were written. And because Sputnik did scare the shit out of every Western civilization, every you know country that like had democracy going, they pooled resources. NASA, I forget what NASA was before it was NASA. You know, Operation Paperclip, which is another talk for another time, came into effect. But in 1959, when Kennedy said we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, uh, being the 60s, or his inauguration address in 1960, it was preposterous to think we could possibly be there in nine years. But we did. The, the, The leaps weren't twofold, threefold. They were, you know, 20-fold. The forwarding of the, the science on every level that went into doing this. You don't want a catastrophe that forces our hand to do this. But if it was a priority, if we had an administration like the one that we have now that lasts eight years, that lasts 12 years, do you think we could get where we need to be? Because the scary thing is... You mean the next eight years, the next four I mean, years. the next eight years, the next four yeah. years after that. If we If we have 12 years of an administration or this administration in the next one that that makes this a priority that that Kerry stays in the position he is and sees this through can we get to where we need to be in the next 4 years 8 years 12 years how how close are we or how far away are we well i think the moonshot analogy is a fantastic one we need an apollo program effort times 10, 20, to make this happen. You know, the part of the Apollo program that people should remember is the spinoff technology from the moon program. You know, everything from calculators to cost electronics. Yeah, Tang, great. The the spinoff technology. So, you know, we will get spinoff technology. We need an Apollo scale type program to do this. The next huge date to remember in this entire discussion 
is Earth Day of this year, 2021, April 22nd, 2021. Biden will be hosting a big Earth, uh, a big climate summit in the U.S. on Earth Day. It is expected that at that summit, he will announce his long-term vision for when the U.S. will become carbon neutral. Now, it might have some nuance. It might be carbon neutral with or without transportation. It might be everything except this, everything except that, or maybe it'll be 90%. Hopefully, it'll be fully carbon neutral. This is in, in anticipation of the next huge international climate meeting in November of this year in Glasgow, Scotland. So, so the gauntlet will be laid on Earth Day of this year, and he will, Biden and his administration and Kerry and McCarthy will put forth a plan for our long-term vision, which we've never had. Our current aspiration, you don't want numbers, but it's to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by year 2025 to be 27% less than we did in 2005. That's too many numbers. Carbon neutral by a certain year, everyone can grasp. So that's what's coming. And we're going to need, you know, more than an Apollo type effort to make that happen. And it involves a lot of jobs, a lot of redirection resources. Look, the money involved is at the three, four to five percent of our GDP. The money involved is a modest fraction of our military spending. If in my class, which is on the science, economics and governments and climate change, we go into the numbers. And every year, the students basically say, just take some of the military money. Oh, well, well no. Put it- uh, you know, I'll, I'll agree and disagree in the same statement, Ross. Don't take the military money. Involve the military in this. Like, like you know, make this a military project. You know, when you think back of the great moments in our history or the great things that we've done as a nation to grow, the highways. You know, yeah, the highways cost a shitload of money, but it put a shitload of people to work. Those people ended up paying taxes, buying houses, buying cars to drive on it. It's the same thing like right now. And again, we're not going to get, you know, off this topic. But over the next I think it's over the next like 30, 60 days, FEMA has gone to the Department of Defense and said, hey, we want to roll out these 100 vaccination centers. We'd like 10,000 troops to help make our goal of 100 million vaccinations via these 100 vaccination centers around the country happen and to do it. So, yeah, talking about military spending is, is, is another topic, except I say, you know, if you want to keep the military spending what it is, great. Reallocate those military, make this. You know, there there was a play last couple of years to make the military be part of building the wall, make the military part of building this bridge to a better future. Amen. My last. I mean, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. yeah, to some degree, because like, you know, obviously there have been extensive DOD analysis about how climate change literally is a national security concern because of the impact that it has on unstable regions and, you know, everything else. So sure. I think in that sense, I mean, that's, um, you know, it could be DOD and NSF funding these, you know, you know, these research, right. So, and development and execution, right. So in that sense, I think that does make sense. The last two points I want to get your, your two cents on here, Ross, 
as awful as COVID was globally is, I'm sorry, I noticed just, you know, here in Boston, when there was a true shutdown in March, April, May, the air seemed a lot cleaner. And then you were seeing around the world, like wildlife coming back. And, and you already mentioned Venice and seeing how for the first time in like, can I, can I say something? Yes. There was no true. There was. There has that been zero, zero. There has been zero true shutdown in this country. No, no. You have to go to shit. But, but, but I'm talking. We're not talking. No. I'm right. talking around the world. Have has there been any note? And I want your opinion on that. And the last thing I want to touch on, this girl Greta. I'm I'm blanking on how to Thunberg. pronounce her last name. Greta Thunberg. Does she? Greta Thunberg. Does she inspire and give hope to client sciences like you? Uh, Greta rocks. She's awesome. Um, and you know, we talk about her in my class. Yeah, she's, she's great because she's willing to put her money where her mouth is. I mean, you know, she didn't want to fly across the ocean. So she sailed across the ocean. That's insane. That's commitment. That's all. That's just awesome. So yeah, that's great. Um, now what was your first question again before we got to Greta? Was, was there? Yeah. I mean, but with Greta and every Friday on my Twitter feed, it's swamped with Greta inspired her climate, you know, like the, her Fridays are like climate strike days around right. the world yep. that she's organized. And that really uh. gives an old guy like me hope that, you know what? I mean, your your parents' generation fucked things up pretty bad. We fucked things up pretty bad, but it gives me hope that this this generation coming up is seeing things differently. Well, that's what I tell my students: is you all got to figure this out because my generation hasn't done a good job of it. Let's uh, about COVID. So, first off, in the U.S., there was a dramatic decline in cars due to COVID. So. All the air pollution associated with cars went away, and so it did have a noticeable effect. I know the Maryland air quality statistics very well. We only had two exceedances of the national ambient air quality standard for surface ozone in 2020, given the climatology and whatnot and the temperature and the wind patterns, we would have expected nine or 10. So we definitely had demonstrable improvements in air quality here in Maryland throughout the East Coast. We fly airplanes up and down the East Coast. A colleague of mine took this amazingly beautiful picture of Manhattan that a New York Times ran with on an airplane flight of the University of Maryland Cessna, Shinrong Ren, took this photograph where you could just see forever uh, down Manhattan. So those days showed what it would be like if everyone drove electric vehicles spectacularly good air quality because combustion puts all this crap into our air and we have catalytic converters and we try to you know get some of it out but we can't get it all out that's the first point second point is globally we did have less co2 emissions in 2020 compared to 2019 by somewhere around four or five percent less and scientists throughout the world they pro published something called the Global Carbon Project that came out a few weeks ago. We also saw a tremendous marker of global conditions, how much CO2 exists in Hawaii compared to the South Pole. That went down for the first time in a huge amount of time in 2020. So we have less emissions. We're seeing the global carbon cycle. Some of my colleagues have large bets on Twitter about what's going to be in 2021. I'm not a betting man, at least not for science. I'll bet on, you know, 
on the Ravens. But anyway, in 2021, people were betting whether it will be higher than 2019 or not. Was 2020 a glitch in the matrix and we're going to go back? What we sincerely hope is our colleagues who say 2021 will be less than 2019 win the bet. And these are bets to send thousands of dollars to a charity of the other scientist's choice. It's that kind of gentle person bet. So if somebody wants to follow you on Twitter or, or, or the socials, where does somebody follow you? Just Google my name, Ross, R-O-S-S, Salowich, S-A-L-A-W-I-T-C-H, Twitter. Are, are you a little unsure? And we're going to link to his uh, his book on uh, Amazon. Yeah, link well, to his book, right? Uh, oh no, no, look, look no, the no, book no, is free. Amazon. The book is free. Oh, the book is free. Okay. Yes. So the you you, so we publish the book under what's called open access. If you link to the Springer site, I can send you the link. Oh, People can awesome. download it for free. We're at sixty thousand downloads and counting. And yes, we awesome. do. Well, they count. That's fantastic. Now it costs us about nine thousand dollars to get this. So, you know, the publisher wants to sell it. And I had a heart to heart with a colleague. Um, I'll say his name. He's a great guy. My colleague, Dave Fahey. And he said, Ross, no one's going to pay to buy your book. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we read everything for free. He's like, if you want to work a year or two on something that no one will read, make us pay for it. So I went to the editor and, you know, said, well, what's it going to take to make this open access? And he got back to me. $9,000. So I went to our research sponsor, NASA, and I went to my program manager and I said, can we expend $9,000 of this federal research money to put our research for free on the internet through open access? And she said, by all means, sure, that's a great way to spend federal money for your research is just let people see it. So you could buy the book for $65 on Amazon. And by the way, we had to forfeit any right, any um, of the, of the, they get all the money. We get zero if you buy it. So get it for free on Springer. Or, or, but great. if you do want to buy it, you know, go to a, a a small local bookstore and have them order or something like that. Jeff Bezos doesn't need any of your money. <laughs> okay, yep. So we will we will put up a link to where to get the book, where to find you. You know, I can't say thank you enough, Ross. Uh, if you got any parting comments or questions. No, no, no. I mean, it, thank you. Thank you, Ross. I mean, this was I mean, it's great to hear from somebody who like truly understands this. And, you know, I mean, you just do an, an amazing job of putting things into you know, very lay terms. Right. So I think that was fantastic. So thank you very much. Thanks, Piff. Thank you. Thanks, Jock. Well, this wraps it up. You know, I, you know what? No, it doesn't. I'm going to. That is one of the things. And, and I don't say many positive things to Ross uh, personally or, or, you know, privately or publicly. But Ross can out Sheldon Sheldon from from the Big Bang Theory when it comes to driving people up the wall with their knowledge of everything in the universe. At the same time, I've seen again, Ross give talks to my nephew's sixth grade class a couple years ago, and everybody walked away a lot smarter and being able to retain the information because Ross, and it's not a dumbing down or talking down to anybody. Ross, you have this amazing ability to find where where the level of where your audience is and get your message across in a very very you know uh sustainable way of retaining it so um i, I thank think you that's so fantastic. much 
Um, That's very kind. Thank you so much. So seriously, we'll put up all of Ross's information. I thank everybody for bearing with me who rambled a lot more than usual and that's saying something because these sideshows are usually a half hour long and this is going to be longer than a regular episode. But I, I, I think it's great. I think, you know, the optimism is, it's just nice. It's just nice that I think we're back on the right track and I'm very looking forward to the, uh, what, is, what, what is the date for Earth Day? Is it April? April, April 22nd. 2021. That is a day to mark on your calendars. And with that said, uh, bye. Bye bye. Stay safe. Okay.